Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is John Dunning. I work with a campus ministry on campus of K-State called RUF, which is our denomination's campus ministry. And, and part of the realities of doing uh, working with college students is that in the summer, most of them are gone. And you would think that that should calm life down a lot. In some weeks it does, in other weeks it does not. And so I want to apologize for my lateness this morning. Part of that's, the, part of that's me, I'll be honest. Um, but part of that is the effects of a full, of a full week. So I want to direct your attention this morning now to Psalm 119. And as you turn there, I want you to be thinking about, we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 40. I want you to be thinking about what change looks like in the world and what change looks like in your life. It's no secret that it's an election season in terms of our national election, and it's a big one, I suppose, for most of us. It's what the the media keeps telling us anyway, that this is a big deal. Um, and, and everyone is talking about change. Both, both of the ma major party candidates are trying to navigate, how do I talk about change in a way that is hopeful, that gets people to vote for me, and that convinces people that there really is a need of change. Well, this morning, I want to apply that to our lives personally as, as a church, as families, as individuals in all walks of life. This summer, we've been making our way through portions of the Psalms. The Psalms is, sort of, is the songbook of God's people, the prayer book of God's people, collected to be used in worship, to be used to be sung, to be used in prayer, but of course, as part of God's word to be preached from as well. And so this morning, we consider the longest, a portion of the longest single chapter in the Psalms. Psalm 119, we're going to be considering simply verses 33 through 40. If you've been with us the last few weeks, You'll know that the Psalm 119 is broken up into 22 stanzas, each stanza in Hebrew beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the funny words that you're not sure how to pronounce that are sort of indented above this section of hey is the one on, the, on this section. That's the first, that's the letter of the Hebrew alphabet that this stanza begins with. So it's a, some creativity infused into God's word um, for our benefit and for our pleasure and for our good. Let's read now together. I'm going to read for us now Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, and we'll consider these words together. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I will keep, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that, we, that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in need of your truth. We come to you in need of your grace. Some of us come needing to know that there is something true beyond our everyday experience because it seems bleak. Others of us need to be woken up because there are so much, there's so much good in our lives that it, it just, sometimes it threatens to distract us from you. For all of us, Father, wherever you may find us this morning, wherever we may find ourselves, we plead and ask that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would guide us, that they would lead us, that they would take us to your holy place, 
to the place where you dwell, that we might meet you this morning through your word. We pray this in dependence upon the working of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, amen. This spring, my family and I got to see the movie Zootopia. The movie is a story about a little bunny rabbit named Judy who has dreams, who has aspirations. She's a country bunny, but she has aspirations to move to the big city to become a police officer. And everyone at the beginning of the movie who, who hears her dream sort of pats her on the head and that's nice, dear, but you're a bunny. You, there's no way you could be a police officer. Even her parents respond that way to her. Early in the movie, her parents say, it's good to have dreams, dear. And her, and her mom pipes in, yeah, just as long as you don't believe in them too much. Judy, her dad says, have you ever wondered how your mom and me got to be so darn happy? Judy says sadly, no. Her dad says, well, we gave up on our dreams and we settled, right, mom? Oh, yes, mom says, that's right, Stu, Stu we settled hard. We gave up on our dreams and that's the clue to happiness. As, as long as we don't dream too much, we're going to be okay. I'll let you see the movie to determine what happens next. It's probably pretty easy to, to, to figure it out. But what I want to think about this morning is I wonder if we settle as God's people. We think it's okay to have dreams about living differently, living more faithfully, living more truly according to God's word. There are times in our lives where we come up with big plans and think, this is going to do it. This is going to make the change that I want to see in my life. We don't want to struggle our whole lives. We want to live differently. We see the reality of sin in our relationships. We see the hurt and the frustration that it can bring. We see the damage even in our own lives. We have dreams to live differently. We wonder, will I ever be different? Will, this, will I ever stop fill in the blank? And yet, I wonder if we don't know the temptation to settle. Because let's be honest, battling sin is hard. If you've been a Christian even a short time, you know what it is to face the realities that when Jesus says, follow me, he means all of us. Every part of our being would be, would be following him. And yet that's difficult. And so cynicism steps in and we think, there's no way I'll ever change. There's no way I'll ever be different. Sometimes laziness steps in. Sometimes other things simply distract us and we move on. But we end up finding ourselves settling. And the reality of change in our lives, what the Bible speaks of, it uses the word sanctification, that God would be transforming us, becomes either a distant memory or this long, long hoped for thing that we don't ever think will come to pass. I want to bring those thoughts and questions to God's word this morning through Psalm 119. As I said, there's a poem, it's, it's written in poetic form on purpose. There's a lot of parallelism, there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of repetition. And so I want to try to consider this morning, really, use, really on, the, on the, considering two basic ideas that show up through this, through this text. The first is, I want us to acknowledge what the writer himself seems to be acknowledging over and over and over again in these verses when it comes to change. And that is very simply this, there is a standard for change. There's a standard that God has set for how he calls us to live. If you'll notice carefully, through, even through these eight verses, notice where the writer's attention is directed. 
if you were paying attention as we read it earlier, and we're going to walk through this piece by piece, but if you remember, he uses at least eight different words to talk about God's law, to talk about God speaking into our world and setting the standard for us to follow, to talk about God's words to his people. He uses, he uses at least eight different terms to show us this isn't simple. This isn't, in, in other words, it's not just about one thing, it's about all of life. Let's consider what he has to say about the standard. First of all, the first thing at point I want you to see is that he describes the standard, he speaks of God's law as something that is authoritative, that it is something that bears the weight and right to be followed. Look, follow along with me. Look at verse 33. He says there, first of all, he begins this section by saying, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. For us, statutes conjures up the imagery of laws that were written down to last. They were inscribed, they were prescribed by someone in authority. They were written down to last. But notice verse 34, he says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law. This is the Hebrew word Torah, which more generally, specific, not thinking in terms of specific laws, but in terms of the, the whole of God's instruction. And that I may keep your law. In verse 35, he adds yet another term. He says, Lead me in the path of your commandments. This is the speaking of God's direction to his people. And then in verse 36, he uses another curious word. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies. Incline my heart to the words to which my people bear witness regarding its truth. To that which is testified about me and about the way to live. And if you'll notice, even at the second part of that verse, he can contrast that with, and not to selfish gain, or not to gain by violence. We testify to what is true and what is real and what is accurate, not what we can manipulate to be our own way. The message in part here is the standard that God has given is authoritative. He has the right to be followed and it bears the weight of that right. But notice, we build on that when we notice not only is it authoritative, but it actually, for you and me, we need to hear that, that God's teaching is intended to be followed. Look again at verse 33. Notice how he's speaking in these words. He says, teach me, notice the second part, and I will keep it to the end. And then in verse 34, he adds to that, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. He's describing a way of living in which all of us is bound up in this process of following the word of God. That we, would, that we would follow it with our whole hearts, that we would keep it, that we would observe it, that we would pay careful attention to it. In verse 35, he makes reference to um, the path of your commandments, not only the commandments, but the way, the, the path on which we move and live and walk after those commandments. And then in verse 37, he picks up on the same idea, and he says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. This isn't simply the idolatry of a book or of being right. But what he's describing is a way of life, a pattern of living and walking. The intention is that it would be followed. And even in, in verse 37, it's, it's that stark contrast where he says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Keep me from following after the things that make promises that they cannot keep. Another way to say that is the emptiness of the things of this world when they promise to give me full satisfaction, keep me away from those things. But guide my steps in each day is what he's praying. It's authoritative and it's intended to be followed. 
Last summer, my family and I um, had the opportunity to go to Yellowstone National Park for the first time, and we camped out and had a great week. And Yellowstone is full of these really fascinating land formations. I'm not going to get all the names right this morning. It's too early to to get them right in the morning. Sorry about that. But there's these hot springs, and you you, you walk around, and you you see smoke or gas coming up from the ground, and you see the fascinating colors that it creates. And one of the things that happens as the springs flow and the gas rises, is that the, the ground around these areas are, are fairly brittle. And so there's boardwalks on which, you're, which you can walk to see them more closely, but there are these signs all over the place. And, and one of the signs that definitely caught my attention is this, and it was a picture of a young child stepping off of the boardwalk onto one of these brittle surfaces, and this is what it said. Please keep children under close supervision. Their curiosity can be deadly. That's a sign that's intended to be followed. It's not a be careful, something bad may or may not happen, or please keep an eye on your kids so they don't mess up the the landscape. No, if you step in the wrong place, it can be deadly is the message that comes across. The sign is intended to be followed. There's one, one, one other thing that I want to point out when we consider the standard in Psalm 119, verses 33 to 40, and that is this. Not only is the message of God, the word of God, authoritative, not only is it intended to be followed, but we need to know that it's also very personal. It's personally given. Look at verse 38. He says there, confirm to your servant your promise. The teaching of God, you see, is described as a promise given. The word promise evokes for us the, the thought that it, it is spoken and that there are ramifications for it, of course. But it's the thought that God has spoken a promise that he intends for us to follow, but that it comes from him and from him alone. If you look at verse 39, it says, Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. The things that you have spoken, God, your judgments, your decisions about the way of life, it, is, it has to do with, with the way that we live our lives in such a way that it's not simply arbitrary. It is not simply something that, that, that was decided from some impersonal force, but that was given by God himself for us to follow. And then if you look at verse 40, he says, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness give me life. That word precepts is a word that conjures up, that has to do with details of daily life. So we have everything from broad general instruction about who God is and the nature of the world in which he created to the precepts of daily life that he intends for us to follow. It's all there to tell us God has spoken personally to us. And his law, his word, reflects not simply laws like we think of often in terms of laws of nature as the way just that things are, but it's intimately bound up in who God is and who he has spoken himself to be through his word. There is a standard, beloved. It's authoritative and he intends for us to follow. But it is one that is is deeply personal. For you and me, one of the things that I want us to keep in mind this morning as we consider these words is this. Know that God calls you to obedience. I want obedience to be, in my life, a category that I think in terms of. Because, to be honest with you, I don't often think about it. I think in terms of what God may or may not want me to do, and when when it's a struggle, it may be something more distant for me. But what, what he's telling us through this portion of his word is that 
the thought is that this is, his word is something that he intends for us to follow. It's not optional. And it's not optional not because Christianity is simply about rules or doing whatever the right thing may be that we think it is. You see, but Christianity is about God himself and who he is and what, how he is at work in his world. And so for us, facing sin begins with facing God. Our self-assessment is not enough. Do you think in terms of obedience? You think in terms of how you do your job tomorrow morning, in terms of what it looks like for you to obey the Word of God and to learn to obey the Word of God. Do you think in terms of your parenting, not in terms of whether or not your children are obeying, but parents, do you think for yourself in terms of obedience to God's Word? When we hear the commands of Scripture, something like love your neighbor, is that a suggestion? Is it optional? Is it, that would be nice someday. Or do we feel the weight of God saying, this is what I made you for, to love me and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're an introvert like me, you need to be reminded that that's not optional either. That God would say to us, love your neighbor. But notice what else shows up in these verses. And in, in, in fact, it's, it's the very structure of the way the verses 33 through 40 work. And it is this, not only is there a standard, but I want you to hear this morning that there is help as you and I learn to, to follow that standard. You see, the very structure of these words is that it reads as a prayer. He's speaking to God, and he's asking God to act in every verse at least once. In verse 33, he says, teach me. In verse 34, he says, give me understanding. In verse 35, he says, lead me. In verse 36, incline my heart. In verse 37, turn my eyes. In verse 38, confirm. In verse 39, turn away. In verse 40, in your righteousness, give me life. Beloved, know that God, he is asking God to do something. God has not left him to himself, but he is actually asking God to help him do what God has called him to do as he lives according to the standard. So what's he praying for as we hear each of those verses read again? The, the first thing that I want you to notice in the first several verses is that he's praying for growth. If you, in, in other words, he's asking God to take him somewhere that he has not yet arrived. He's saying, God, I want you to work in my life to take me somewhere according to your standard. If you notice again in verse 33, he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Verse 35, Give me understanding that I may keep your law. He's asking for clarity. He's asking to be like a student sitting in a classroom who doesn't understand algebra. He's saying, help me understand. When he says, give me understanding, he says, he's, he's asking for clarity. Because let's be honest, it's not always obvious what we're supposed to do in every situation. He's asking God to be the teacher in his life that he might be the learner. And that as God teaches him, he will learn how to follow. But 35 adds to that when he says, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. He's acknowledging that there's part of him that loves the word of God, that, that delights in it, that finds joy and happiness in it. And yet even in the midst of acknowledging that, he's saying, I need your help, O God, to follow faithfully. Even when I can see the beauty and the truth that I, that I delight in your law and your word and the path of your commandments, God, I need your help to continue to learn how to follow. But not only does he pray for growth in the next couple of verses, notice that he prays for a turning. 
He's, he's speaking in terms of motivation and the desire that we've already acknowledged. If you look at verse 36, he says, incline my heart to your testimonies. God, pull my heart towards those things which your people testify in this world about is true. Pull me away from these worthless things. Help me to follow you. Draw my heart closer to where you would have me to be. He's speaking in terms of his own motivations, acknowledging that it's not simply a matter of what he can do outwardly as if, he could, as if conforming outwardly would be enough. But he's saying, God, my heart needs the inclination. Even as I delight in your law, even at my core, my inward being, I need you to help me want to obey because I don't want to on my own. If you look at verse 37, he says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. He's saying, God, shape my desires. Because there's much in this world that is making big promises about giving me happiness and satisfaction. And it's not a question of whether or not there is goodness in this world. God's word tells us that there is, that God gives us good gifts in this world, and that there's much to be celebrated. But when those good things become ultimate things, they become worthless things. Because they will not satisfy. And this is the humble, honest acknowledgement that there's a huge draw that my heart would be turned towards those things. To trust in my status. To trust in my job. To trust in my education. To trust in how much my kids seem to obey. To trust in who my family is. To trust in who my country is. There's much temptation to trust in all of those good things in this world. But he's acknowledging, Father, I need you to help turn the very core of my being so that I would not long to trust in those things, but would trust in you. And then notice again verses 38 through 40. He says in verse 38, Confirm to your servant your promise. Now we know that God always fulfills His promise that that which He says He will do, He will do. Both, both the Old Testament and the New Testament make that abundantly clear. That God speaks and that God acts always in faithfulness. And yet what a humble prayer to ask God to be who He already is. To say, God, I need to know that You're going to confirm Your promise. That may sound like a scary thing to ask. But it's a place of dependence. And what he's asking is that God would be who he has said that he will be. Notice verse 39, he says, Turn away the reproach that I dread. Father, my life is filled with shame, and my enemies could easily taunt me for what I have done wrong. He's saying, God, I need you to help me deal with the sin and the shame of my life because it is too much for me to bear. And then in verse 40, he says, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. My life is not the standard, no matter how well I learn to obey, no matter how good I get, no matter how faithful I am, no matter how much I serve. It is in the righteousness of God alone and him giving that to us, his people, that we can find his comfort and his working. He, this, the writer is asking for God to be God. I want to tell you this morning, asking for help is a learned skill. If you don't believe it, serve in the nursery sometime and ask a child to work on a puzzle and try to help them working on a puzzle. Because what you will hear if you, have, if you would have had my kids in there a few years ago, you would have heard, let me do it, me, me do it, me do it, me do it. 
We want to, we, we, we're made to be independent creatures and that's a really good thing. But it means that we don't naturally learn to ask for help. What the psalmist is modeling for us is that very thing. To learn to say, God, I am not enough. You have not left me here to do the figure all this out on my own. You've spoken through your word. And now I'm asking you to work through that word in my life to change me. Do you pray this way? Do you pray for change in your own life? I think if, I, if I'm honest with my own heart, I, I often pray that my circumstances would change depending on what those circumstances may be. That's a good thing to do. Scripture leads us to do that. We pray that God's kingdom would come. We pray that things would happen in this world so that we might live faithful Christian lives. And yet what's modeled for us in addition to that is to pray that God would be at work in our lives internally to change us. Do you pray that way? The other thing I want you to see that this does is it helps us to see obedience more clearly. As we hear these honest, faithful, struggling prayers of a man trying to live honestly in this world, do you assume that obedience is simple? Do you assume that obedience is immediate? Do you assume that obedience is easy? as if it's always a matter of black and white. These words are saying to us, it's a process. It's a long process in need of endurance, in need of trial and error, in need of failure. And the reality of failure in your life against sin does not mean that God is not present in your life, but it means he has you exactly where he has you. And the call for you and me is to ask for help in those moments, even on a daily basis, to ask for help, to pray for growth, to pray for the turning of our attention and our affections, and even to pray maybe what seems to be the most obvious prayers in the Bible, to pray that God would be God in our lives and that we would know it to be true. There's a movie that came out a number of years ago called The Cider House Rules. It's a, it's actually was filmed um, because it's a book first, and I, the author's name is escaping me at the moment. But it's a, it's a fascinating but difficult to watch movie because of the subject content. It's about a, a young boy who kind of a coming of age story as he learns to kind of find his way in the world. And the, the title comes from about halfway or two thirds of the way through the movie, you meet a bunch of sharecroppers, which effectively are still slaves. It's post Civil War, but they're effectively a group of slaves working at a cider house where apples are pressed to make cider. And on the wall of the house where they work and live is a list of five, uh, five rules. They are these, don't smoke in, please don't smoke in bed. Please don't operate the grinder or press if you've been drinking. Please don't go to the roof to eat your lunch. Please, even if you are very hot, don't, do not go up to the roof to sleep. And number five, there shouldn't be no going up to the roof at night. The thing about the cider house rules that are printed on, the, on a piece of paper that hangs in the cider house is none of the slaves are able to read. So they have no, no idea what the rules say. They walk past them every day as they go in and out of the building, but they have no idea what it says. Was the young man, the main character of the movie, shows up at this, at this plantation, he actually reads them to the slaves for the first time. One of them responds, what do they think? Go up to the roof to sleep? They must think we're crazy. They think we're dumb, so we need some dumb rules is what they think. Another slave responds, that's it? It don't mean nothing at all. And all this time I've been wondering about them. 
one of the older slaves in the house, the one who's been there the longest, says this. He says, they outrageous, them rules. Who, who live in this cider house? Who grinding up these apples, pressing that cider, cleaning up all this mess? Who just plain live here, just breathing in that vinegar? Well, someone who don't live here made those rules. Those rules ain't for us. We're, we're supposed to make our own rules, and we do every single day. Do you hear? They see the rules as absurd. They don't make any sense to their daily life. But the final judgment is this. The one who made those rules doesn't live there. He doesn't understand. And so they're left to make up their own rules. The, word, the rules of God's word, the standard of God's word that we see even this morning may to some of you seem that strange and that absurd. There's certainly things in the Bible that we need to study to learn how to make sense of because it's so different from written 2,000, 3,000 years later, our daily life. And yet, because God has spoken and because God is present, we don't get to dismiss them. We don't get to simply say they don't matter even if we don't understand them. We, and we know that we don't get to say that fully because of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the standard of the law of God, the teaching of God. And beloved, Jesus is our help. And we know that because he lived, because he died, and because he rose again in our place to meet the standard for us. And faith in him means we trust not in our ability, but in what he's accomplished for us. But consider how the New Testament speaks about him. In Philippians 2, he was in the form of God, but did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The standard makes sense because God sent his son who became obedient. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. That somehow in this process, being fully God, he became at the same, very same time fully man. And in, his, in, the, in the weakness of his human nature, he learned obedience through suffering. He learned what you and I are trying to learn. But hear these words from Colossians chapter 3. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The Bible calls you and I to obedience. And it calls us to ask for help. But the hope that you and I have in Jesus is that he is actually changing us. That by the presence of his spirit in all who would believe in him, whether you see it on a daily basis or not, the promise is that you are being renewed in the image of God. That, the, the, that which, which with, in which you were created to reflect God's glory and his grace and his goodness and his truth in all of the world, that is the thing that he is doing in you on a daily basis. He gives us the standard so we might see him more clearly. We might know its authority. That we might know that he is turning us. That we might know that it's personal. That it's intended for us as a way of life. 
and he gives us the help. But ultimately he says, this is what I'm doing in you because of my son, the one who became obedient even to the point of death and three days later rose again to let you know that it's true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need to be reminded again of your faithfulness. We need to be reminded again, not because you are not faithful, but because we are often distracted, because we are often slow to understand, because we often fail and we think the failure is the end. Father, even today on this day of rest, help us to find rest in your grace. Rest in your work, rest in your word, rest in your promises, Lord Jesus. We look to you to be changed, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.